This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James and joining me on today's episode are Emmett and Mike from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today we're talking about worries over Amazon's slowing growth, why Coca-Cola is the perfect stock to weather inflation, and what the future might hold for Teladoc after a disastrous few months. So guys, welcome Emmett, Mike to this week's Stock Club podcast. Before we start off, I just want to remind listeners that we now have an extended version of Stock Club in the My Wall Street app. This week, I'm going to pick my favorite elevator pitch that Mike and Emmett pitched me, and we're going to discuss it in more detail. So if you want to listen into that, simply just hop over to the My Wall Street app, set up your free account, and you can listen to this episode plus all of our past episodes in there now. Guys, I'm going to set us a challenge this week that we're not going to mention a certain multimillionaire tech CEO guy who shoots off to space and, and buys companies and stuff like that. The last three podcasts have been dedicated explicitly to this person. So please, for the love of God, can we just talk about something different this week? Evan, I saw you had tweeted that something else has happened with this, he who shall not be named. And you were like, yeah. please don't make us talk about it on the podcast again. <laughs> and it was not insignificant. That says, oh, please, no, not another story. OK, let's not even mention it. Yeah, we'll, we'll start a brand new podcast dedicated just to that certain person. Um, but let's get into it. And there's a big story coming up here first. We all knew that this earnings season was going to be a tough one for a lot of companies. But even some of the biggest companies in the world are flagging at the moment. Last Friday... Amazon stock dropped close to 15% after the e-commerce giant reported on a less than impressive quarter. Revenue of about $116 billion was actually amazingly represented anemic growth of just 7% from the same time last year, some of its slowest growth in over a decade. Net loss of $3.8 billion was a big shock to analysts too. I think a lot of this was related to the company's stake in that EV company, company Rivian. What's more, things look like they're not going to get too much better over at Amazon either, with management anticipating growth of between just 3 and 7% for the next quarter. Mike, We've come. We've become accustomed to a lot of the smaller tech companies getting hammered over the last couple of months. But did you expect a, a behemoth the size of Amazon to suffer as well? Yeah, well, I I don't think it's surprising Amazon is suffering right now. Um, taking into account all the kind of specific economic conditions we're going through at the minute, I mean, mm. high inflation is going to cause less discretionary income. It's going to be a huge headwind for the retail side of the business. We've got rising fuel costs, labor struggles, labor labor struggles supply chain constraints as well you know all that good stuff is going to put a pressure on costs going to put a pressure on on revenue especially from the rev- especially from the retail side so i would say that of any kind of the the big tech companies i suppose amazon is perhaps the most exposed yeah. in terms of kind of this economic pressure right now yeah 
But you call those the big tech companies, and obviously there's Fang. Although whether Netflix should be part of it anymore is is up for debate. But you know these companies, you know they're they're worth trillions of dollars. Should they not be a little bit more stable or considered kind of more anchor stocks compared to the smaller companies that are, are getting kind of rattled around a good bit? Yeah, well, I think, like it kind of seems like they're dropping one by one. We saw what happened with Facebook recently, and and it kind of proved that these we'll say Facebook, Apple, Amazon. Google and Microsoft. We call it, they were the trillion dollar club. Tesla's up there as well, but it's kind of in its own bracket. Netflix is Netflix is just part of the acronym for some strange reason. <laughs> because it makes a word. <laughs> because it makes a word and FAMG doesn't sound too good. But um yeah, no, like there's there's kind of been this this concentration at the top of the major indexes, the S P five hundred and NASDAQ for a while now, where I think they make up about 20 to 25% of the S&P 500 and about almost 40% of the Nasdaq between four companies. And so when you see a lot of the companies we've been looking at for the last year, year and a half, the tech stocks, the highly valued names falling significantly while yeah. the market is just steady as she goes, it kind of, it kind of causes a bit of a, a bit of a, a disruption, I suppose, in your thinking of, well, my stocks are down, but the market's doing fine. Why is this? And I, I suppose these stocks went a long way to explaining why. So seeing them kind of, I suppose, weaken, and we've seen it in all the names really across the board, mm. um, just kind of, it, it gives, I suppose it makes sense now, do you know? Like as in the rest of the market was down, now the whole market is down. And I think April was the worst month the NASDAQ has had since 2008 or something. Yeah, I'm so, just looking here. Amazon's 35% off its all-time highs. You know, if you'd said that to us a couple of months ago, we would have bit your hand off. But it seems that everyone's a little bit more cagey now about, you know, every company seems to be going down and seems to continue going down. Um, Emmett, a question we got on Twitter recently um, from a guy, one of our followers called The Instinctive Investor, great name. Um, he asked us that at some point, does it become just impossible for these massive companies like Amazon or, or he mentioned Spotify and Netflix? as well but does it become impossible for them to keep growing you know amazon has touched almost every corner of the world and every industry of the world at what point do does the market or investors their expectations shift to more growth more growth more growth to these companies just becoming stable cash generators mm. it is inevitable like uh you can look at a, a business i suppose as you might look at an oak tree eventually that tree has taken full form and it is kind of reached full maturity and you can count rings someday when it's felled. But really the reality is there comes a point where there's a critical mass and to grow in the percentage terms that we're used to looking at um, as retail investors and as professional investors is very, very difficult. So you might look at one of the giants of today and they are examining new business areas that they can enter that is large enough to actually have an impact on their bottom line. So yes, the, eventually a business will reach a maturity phase. And uh, I don't have to hand, but if you were to look at the top 10 businesses from 20 years ago, I think only about three are still in that list today. And that kind of is indicative of how the market changes over time. And uh, yes, it's not shocking that Amazon has hit a critical point at this moment in time. That's not to say it's not going to grow again. I'm sure it will. It's such a multi-diversified business. But uh, yes, the businesses do mature and eventually just have to keep generating cash in the way that they know how. And eventually they become the incumbent and something comes up behind them. Yeah, absolutely. What, what signs do you think would like 
indicate that maturation? Would it be like concentration on profitability or dividends or, or what kind of, I suppose you can't paint them all with the same brush, but what have you mm. seen, I suppose, throughout your investing career? When a business becomes a regular dividend payer, you're, it is effectively, I don't want to say it's out of ideas for what to do with it. It's at excess cash. That's not correct. But when you think there's only about, you know, six or so uses for net bottom line profit and giving it back to shareholders really is kind of it, the other alternatives for that bottom line cash are to enter new products or new markets or to pay down debt or to do share buybacks. But when a business starts to disimburse its bottom line in the form of dividends, it has reached a point that it's at a quite a mature phase. It's 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 got people, usually institutional investors, to keep happy, and they do that by paying regular dividends. and And that's not to say that a dividend paying business is out of growth opportunities, but I do think it signals a change in in tempo and in how that business is being managed. Yeah, as we mentioned, though, Amazon is one of those companies that seems to be just constantly looking for new areas of growth. And as I said before, part of the big loss in Amazon in the last quarter was its investment in Rivian, the EV car maker, uh, whose stock has fallen something like 75% since it IPO'd back in November. Mike, do you think it's typical or is it typical to see a non-core sector affect a company to such a degree as we saw with Amazon? Was anyone watching Teladoc last week? Did that make any headlines? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> look, I this this sure we knew it in Q4 that this was going to happen in Q1. Like I'm not interested in the fate of Rivian if I'm an Amazon investor right now. Yeah, like, in Q4 I think the company posted like thirty dollars in earnings per share. Yeah, and now it, it's come the opposite way because of an investment in Rivian has gone down. I. I, I wouldn't pay it much interest. Um, I, I think it makes a big headline n- number, but anyone looking under the hood for more than five minutes will realize that it's, it is it is just that headline number. What it does kind of say about Amazon, though, I think, based on the conversation we're having there, is that Amazon isn't like, say, an ExxonMobil or something, where they were the huge companies of yesteryear, but kind of got forgotten by the market. Amazon seems to be constantly, and similar to the likes of Facebook or Meta, they're constantly looking for the next big thing to sustain that growth. So, in a way, you know, a, a, a punt like Rivian, which it hasn't played out, but it is maybe a, a good sign of, of Amazon's ambitions into the next decade. Absolutely. And I think the big thing is they own what, 33% of the public cloud and stuff, you know, like is in, they have so many underlying businesses or aspects of their business that have developed them into the behemoth they are, you know, mm-hmm. this is a company that started selling books. think about that now and and, and it's all come from this kind of like uh i suppose introspective attitude towards costs and towards methods and efficiencies and stuff so that's where aws was born and like for many investors now aws is amazon's business or at least the reason they hold the stock so it controls i said about a third of the cloud infrastructure market took in 18 billion dollars last quarter and operating income was almost 7 billion and this is all while like Microsoft and Google are trying to take them down as well. It's an absolute behemoth. And it's like one of the true key infrastructures of the internet as we know it. And I, there's no plans of slowing down anytime soon either. Like if you slap a 15x price to sales multiple on AWS, you're getting a trillion dollar company alone. So that means if that, and that is not ridiculous at all, considering like where it is, its industry, its growth, that's maybe conservative. Like, look at Snowflake's price sales multiples. Um, yeah. 
So you got a trillion dollar business there. That means you're getting 40% of America's e-commerce market for about $250 billion right now. So yeah, Amazon is a beast. There's no yeah. other way to say it, especially I do, yes. We, we won't send a debt knell for Amazon just yet. Um, no. and as you mentioned, their cloud business was kind of one of the bright spots in the recent uh, report. I think they saw growth of about 36.5% there. So um, yeah, I think think uh, things are, are going on at Amazon that, that don't have us too worried. Let's move on then. So Amazon had a bad quarter and it's all doom and gloom in the market these days. But there are some companies that aren't doing that badly at all. And a company that we, I don't think I've ever talked about in this podcast, but is part of our shortlist is Coca-Cola. Uh, Coca-Cola stock is currently touching all time high is about $65 a share and it's an impressive feat really when you consider the the state of the wider market and the wider world. Reporting in their most recent quarter a few weeks ago, the company topped both earnings and revenue expectations with the latter revenue growing in a respectable 16% from the same time last year. Emmett, Coca-Cola, we're seeing supply chain constraints, inflationary pressures and even the company's withdrawal from the Russian market in the last few months. How is Coca-Cola managing to perform so well with all of these kind of troubles going on around it? Mm. James, would you mind if I started with the history of Coke? Because as you said, it's quite different to the majority of other businesses we discuss here. And I will absolutely get to your question. Um, I just like to paint the picture. Well, you know, for a start, like who has not had a formative interaction with Coke? It's arguably up there or even beyond Disney, like whether it was, you know, Coke at Christmas or when you're, you know, making uh, your bar mitzvah or your 10th birthday or an icy can of Sprite after walking for hours in the sun or an innocent smoothie for your child. Yeah. You know, or the first coffee you had at Costa, which was fully owned by Coca-Cola, um, you know, uh, with someone who turned out to be the love of your life. Coke is the business of making memories. And it has featured in so many of all of our lives defining moments. Like yeah. Coca-Cola is a prop in the movie of your life. And it really does set the scene for a company that basically, you know, just shovels out um, caffeine and low quality carbs. <laughs> uh, anyway, moving away from the romantic imagery and onto one of a quick history of a business that everybody knows. It started in 1886. 135 years ago, when a pharmacist called John Pemberton created a a kind of caramel colored liquid, stuffed it with sugar, uh, carbonated it. I don't know how you did it back then without a soda stream, but he carbonated some caramel colored sugary water and Coca-Cola was born. And it must have tasted okay because the rights to the formula that he invented were bought two years later in 1888 by a businessman called Asa Griggs Candler for just $2,300. And Coca-Cola Company was subsequently incorporated four years later in 1892. So Candler got to buy the business and Coke was first sold from fountains for five cent a glass. And by 1913, wait to hear this, one out of every nine Americans had tried it. And none of us really know what life was like back then, but we read enough to know that logistics around getting a drink that, you know, that widely distributed yeah. was no mean feat. I, I read a book by Bill Bryson. It's one of my favorite books. I think it's called American 1927. Yeah, yeah. The clue is in the title. It's a superb book. And when you read it, you, you get an insight into how utterly different life was then. So to actually have distributed this drink to one and nine Americans 
was something else. And then as competition began to enter the market, um, Candler sold the rights to bottle Coca-Cola, which launched the Coca-Cola system, quote unquote. And this was a franchise partnership that now exists between Coke and more than 250 bottlers worldwide. Then in 1916, the instantly recognizable signature Coca-Cola bottle was introduced to prevent the real drink from being confused with, you know, copycats and pretenders. And a couple of years later, uh, actually it was three years later in 1919, a group of businessmen led by Ernest Woodruff purchased a Coca-Cola company from Candler for $25 million. And later that year, it made its way into the IPO system on the New York Stock Exchange for $40 a share where it has been listed ever yeah. since. And the story from that point is one of acquisitions and product launches and entering new markets and everything you can think of. It It must be the focus of dozens of different glorious MBA case studies. And then there's so many interesting side stories about Coke. Like it really is the story of America to a point. Like Coca-Cola's brand massively helped McDonald's grow successfully in its early days it was it was it is now an acknowledged key part of mcdonald's success other elements of the story that it was the first soda as we call soft drink on this side of the world it was the first soda consumed in space and it's been quite the success in mexico i don't know if you know this where the average person in mexico consumes 700 servings a year if you don't mind coke is to mexico what guinness is to ireland so (laughs) needless to say coca-cola has uh, split over and over again from at least 1965, from what I can see. And it has been pumping out dividends quarter after quarter after quarter for far longer. So today, Coca-Cola, the company, owns 200 brands. Mm. Um, and this is where I should have something open on my screen. But uh, they have Fanta and Lilt and Sprite, uh, Dr. Pepper, Schweppes, Costa Coffee, uh, I don't know, Coke, they have Coke, (laughs) and loads more. And according to their website, they're selling in 200 plus countries and territories, which caused me to raise an eyebrow as I didn't think there were 200 countries in the world. So I took to Google to find out there are 195 countries, James. So I'm not sure where where to go and get those extra five territories. (laughs) (laughs) Depends on your political beliefs. (laughs) So exactly. So wherever there are humans, there's Coke. And I'm pretty certain... That with the possible exception of Pepsi, there is no other physical product company that is so utterly absorbed. So before I eventually get to your question, I'm going to go up in the 40,000 foot helicopter and just tell our listeners what Coke looks like today. It's a $275 billion company, um, which is quite the return on investment for the guy who bought it back when, it's $63 a share. It has a history of beating quarterly estimates. Last year, the year 2021, total revenue cash into the till came in at about $38.6 billion. And the very bottom line, it landed almost $10 billion in net profit. Yeah. So bringing it to the moment and the question, and last week they they announced their results, as you said in the introduction, and and as a result of inflation-related price hikes globally, they smashed analyst estimates and for sales and profit. So specifically, net sales for the quarter was $10.5 billion against expectations of about $9.8 billion, the analyst estimates, and the earnings per share 
came in at about 64 cent per share versus what was expected at 58 cent. So to your question at last, James, which I recall for once, supply chain constraints, inflation and Coke's withdrawal from the Russian market. I think you asked me about that. Well, the short answer is they have great pricing power. Yeah. Coke said in that quarterly call I was listening to that it's price mix metric. This is the key metric for Coca-Cola and it's a measure of price increases on products. It rose 7% in the quarter. And in North America, they said their price mix grew 11%, primarily um, by what they say, pricing actions in the marketplace. In other words, price hike. So they, uh, they also said there's a continued recovery in the fountain business. You know, we know what the fountain business, the machine that you squeeze your cup against and the away from home channels and strong growth and premium offerings. So when you mash all of this together, James, Operating profits in the business surged 33% from a year ago, and that's really impressive for a business that's so established with such pedigree that goes back well over 100 years ago. It's, it's actually unbelievable. Yeah, so in, in case of Coke, like, I think CEO James Quincy mentioned that they were going to be increasing prices sooner rather than later, given the rising costs of ingredients and packaging and things like that. So with a brand like Coke, with, I suppose, a global recognition like Coke, that's that that's not a concern for investors, I understand, that you know Coke has the ability to be able to raise its prices and not worry about losing customers or losing loyalty. Mm, well, as well, management affirmed their previous growth outlook, so you have to assume it's good. Uh, Quincy, the CEO, said that organic sales were going to rise between seven and eight percent, despite uh, new pressures from you know uh, suspending operations in Russia and lockdowns in China and so on. Uh, and the company still expects to generate eleven billion dollars of free cash flow in twenty twenty two. So much more cash will be heading towards shareholders through dividends, as discussed earlier, to top of the cast and stock buybacks. So yeah. the pain that Coke suffered as a result of that thing we do not wish to speak the name of, and I'm not talking about the individual, I'm talking about the big flu, uh, <laughs> the thing that sent us <laughs> home, is over and the rebound continues. Yeah, absolutely. And so then just, I suppose, to finish this, you know, how Coca-Cola is part of the My Wall Street shortlist, obviously iconic brand, really, really iconic company. But where would Coca-Cola sit in a potential portfolio? Like it seems to me one of those anchor stocks, um, you know, you mentioned dividends, it's the the length of time it's been around. So it seems like one of those anchor stocks, uh, you know, a steady grower rather than a, you know, a multi-bagger, even though I, I don't want to say it's got a small market cap, but it's a relatively small market cap compared to other giants of industry. You know, it's $275 billion mm. compared to trillion dollar companies. Where do you do you see Coca-Cola sitting for an, a potential investor? Yeah, I agree. It, it, it is relatively small when you look at some of the names we discussed. It, it, for me, it's a bedrock stock. It's a buy it and it's a hold it forever. And the appetite now today in today's market is for steady, eddy, dividend paying, will be around forever type stocks. And there are a few out there that have the pedigree of Coke, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great company to, to kind of shine a light on once every so often. Mike, are you a fan of Coke? Yeah, I think um, I just have one addition to the history. I mean, I'd love to know when they took the cocaine out of the drink. <laughs> <laughs> do you have that well, tidbit there in your, in your you research? Know, actually, I, I don't have that. But what I did discover in my research was the amount in the drink was so negligible. It wasn't actually... 
you couldn't really perceive it when you drank the drink, but it was in there for sure. So it wasn't, obviously it's a great story, but it really wasn't, you know, such a big part of the ingredients early, early on, or at least that's what they're saying now. <laughs> they they would say that. <laughs> Let's move on then. And don't forget that if you're listening to this podcast, not in the My Wall Street app, you're missing out on a full version of one of our elevator pitches at the end of this episode. It's completely free to listen to Stock Club in the My Wall Street app. All you need to go is download the My Wall Street app on iOS or Android and create a free account. On next week's Stock Club, we have a fantastic interview with Bet Kindig from the IO Fund coming up. Emmett, you recorded this interview with Bet a few weeks ago. What did you guys chat about briefly? Well, we spoke about a lot of things. We actually spent quite some time I'm talking about the crypto market and in the call um, or in the podcast, Beth identifies her favorite crypto coin at the moment, uh, yeah. cryptocurrency at the moment. I hadn't heard of it, but that's fine. And actually, I bought some after the call. Okay. And we spoke about her favorite stocks. And and I suppose she it, it's no secret that she's a huge bull on NVIDIA and Fubo TV. So I asked her what was her updated thinking on those two stocks, which she shared with me. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really, really good interview. I've just uh, listened to the edit there. So make sure to check that out. That'll be going out next Friday. Some other great stuff going on around my Wall Street too. We've the latest stock of the month pick live in the app. Mike, this is your first stock of the month pick. How uh, how'd you find it? And can you give us any clues on what the company is? Yeah, first one being picked in this very volatile middle of earnings season. It yeah, was Rory really threw you into the, <laughs> into the fire there. <laughs> Um, do I have any clues without giving it away? Yeah, it's lots of changes in the advertising industry. I think this is one of the companies that's going to benefit the most from them. Yeah. Well, if you want to read the report, it's in the My Wall Street app now. If you want to listen to the report, the Stock of the Month podcast is coming up this Monday. You can tune in and listen to myself and Mike discuss this latest pick in more detail and answer any questions you might have had about it. All of this great stuff, including daily market headlines, analyst insights, our full list of stock picks, can all be found in the My Wall Street app now, so make sure to check it out. Right, guys, let's go over to the mailbag. And yeah, we're back to the bad news, unfortunately. Last week, one of the companies that we talk very frequently about here uh, on Sock Club and in my Wall Street in general is Teladoc. They obviously suffered a big 50% sell-off last week, have been hammered by the markets recently. The company's lost over 85% of its value since its all-time highs in February of 2021. Of course, we've received tons of questions in asking us about Teladoc, what our thoughts were on the event last week and kind of in more general. Emmett, Teladoc is a company on both the My Wall Street shortlist and the Horizon portfolio. Can you take us through briefly what happened last week and what you think the future holds for this company? Oh, yes, yes, I can, James. And I, <laughs> I, I know there's been an absolute avalanche of of questions about the company, which is very understandable because we have been pumping it, discussing it, buying it alongside so many other uh, great investors. But I'm going to do my usual, James, and just assume that someone out there has not heard of Teladoc, but I'm going to keep it short. So Teladoc is a leading provider of telemedicine, which is remote expert medical care from doctors and consultants and other professionals using your computer or phone and other connected devices. And the company aims to provide care for the whole person, which spans mental and physical health. And actually on that point in the recent quarter, 78% of sales were multi-product, which shows that members are using the service for a variety of ailments. Um, As part of the backstory, regular listeners to Stock Club will recall that in order to instantly have a chronic care solution, Teladoc bought a company called Lavongo. um, Isn't that the right pronunciation? Yeah, Lavongo. Lavongo. 
Lavango, yeah, thankfully, because I've been saying it for the past <laughs> week in two microphones. So they bought Lavango in 2020, the tail end of 2020, for $18.5 billion in a mixture of cash and stock. Now, Lavango, as I said, specializes in the management of chronic illnesses such as diabetes and high blood pressure and all those other you know, scourges of the human body. Today, as we record, Teladoc in its entirety, that is with Lavango fully absorbed, is valued at $6.2 billion. So, wow. ouch, ouch, yeah. really ouch. Right, so back in November 2020, or whenever a deal closed, Teladoc paid 60 times Lavango's annual sales, which you know, with the rear view mirror was monstrous. And we, I remember, had a, a dedicated podcast to discuss it. It was almost dedicated. The Livongo guys got a deal. So it was apparent now that the business Teladoc overpaid. So the management team decided the time was right to book an impairment charge. I will say, and I could come on to that impairment charge in a moment, but I will say that a good marriage is a good marriage. Yeah. And I do think that the Lavango plus Teladoc merger, if you like, or acquisition is a great match. It's just a real pity that they paid through the nose for it. But if it's any consolation, and it's very little, to be honest, but I don't think that a merger such as this would or could have happened now. So maybe in the very long run, that awful price paid will look palatable, but not in 22, I'm afraid. Last week's conference call was pretty good in parts, right? So revenue increased 25% in the quarter for to $565 million. So 25% up compared to the same quarter a year prior. Mm. Uh, Access fees grew 29%, nearly half a billion dollars. Visit fee revenue grew 12%. So they were able to charge more for their service. Revenues in America grew, or the US rather, grew 24%, again, to nearly a half a billion dollars. Revenue per user increased 20.5%. That's impressive. And international revenue grew 27%. And members grew, it was a lukewarm, members grew 5% to 54.4%. Uh, million members. However, management reduced their guidance, their EBITDA guidance by 25%, primarily as a result of higher customer acquisition costs. And as they said, new, well-capitalized competitors. So they flagged a strategic change, new giant competitors on the landscape, and then a, a commercial change, which is the cost yeah. of getting you know, going deeper into the curve. I mean, they have what, nearly 55 million members. But the real clangor, the absolute clangor of clangors arrived when management cleared their throats and announced that they were going to book a non-cash, non-cash impairment charge of $6.6 billion or $41.11 per share for that Lavongo acquisition. Yeah. So combined with the, let's say, business as usual loss in the business, they announced a net loss per share of 41.58 compared to $1.31 a year ago. Um, Again, not to assume our listeners are all accountants, but, um, and I hope they're not because I'm about to explain what an impairment charge is. But an (laughs) impairment charge is a process used by businesses to write off worthless goodwill. So there was a lot to digest in this. 
And to say there's hot debate out there about Teladoc at the moment is an understatement. Some great investors are calling it a game over. It's yeah. literally gone. Uh, while others, like Cathy Wood, for example, who we know from ARC, um, uh, and who, by the way, ARC is Teladoc's top institutional owner. It owns one eighth of the shares, I think, about 12.5% of all of Teladoc's shares are owned by by, by ARC. Um, Cathy reckons that it's far from game over. And and ARC said in an email, in their, their kind of movers and gainers, their movers and losers email, uh, I quote, given the tumultuous market dynamics in digital care management would have served shareholders and other stakeholders better with a strategy of under-promising and over-delivering. Nonetheless, we do believe the Teladoc's long-term competitive position and product differentiation are unmatched, gearing it for superior growth over the long term. So let me just, in fact, borrow a little more from that passage because it's quite interesting to get Cathy's view on this. She said, or sorry, Ark said, not Cathy, but I'm sure she had influence on the piece. But uh, Ark said, compared to 2017, its visit volumes are five times higher. Its paid member count is twice as high. Annual revenue is 5x higher. Its cash flow positive. One in six Americans is a full Teladoc member. The primary reason for its sudden stock decline was the 25% reduction in its EBITDA guidance. So it's 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 really, it's very difficult to witness this, most especially when you're a shareholder, because yeah. you realize when a company falls 50%, it needs to double to get back what you paid. If a f- business falls 90%, it has to grow 10x to get back what you paid. And the, the kind of growth mathematics that we have to work with in as investors start to prevail in our thinking. And, and what I would say is that there's clearly more bears than bulls out there from what I can see. Well, I mean, that's been handed to us on a plate with the stock price. I mean, literally cratered. So clearly there's more bears than bulls. Yeah. But I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't think I'm a bear. I mean, I I wouldn't say I'm a screaming bull, but I really do not believe it's game over for Teladoc, not by a long shot, but it has it overpaid for Lavango. Yeah. It has the it has mind space occupancy in fifty-five million people's uh heads and, and lives. So I just think it's it's a business that might just we're next quarter is going to be very important because yeah. management are being accused of all types of ranging from incompetence to a deliberate misleading of investors. And I certainly hope and wish it isn't the latter because we can't tolerate that. But I do know as a former CEO of a business, my Wall Street, that you will say to shareholders what you absolutely believe to be the honest best forecast only to find a day later that things have changed a week later so i really don't think the management were so short-sighted as to go let's just tell this great big dirty lie to get some short-term gains and and sure we'll deal with the fallout later i don't believe that for a second yeah hopefully it's just a case of getting all the dirty laundry out now but as you said the next quarter at least is going to be really really telling for teledoc so we'll keep a close eye on that just looking at the time guys so let's move on to the elevator pitch to finish out today's show so i'm going to ask you guys to pitch me give me a 30 second pitch of a company you're watching at the moment i'm going to pick one and we're going to discuss it then in more detail for the my wall street version of stock club so mike i'm going to come to you first your quick 30 second pitch uh, what company you're pitching me uh, the company I'm pitching is called Shift4. Um, it's a payments processor that has kind of carving itself out some interesting niches um, in sectors like stadiums, 
air travel, gaming, and online gambling. Um, kind of operates POS systems and business, business man- management software. And it also recently launched through an acquisition, its e-commerce solution called Shift4 Shop. It's okay. kind of like a shop, Shopify-like uh, uh, merchant kind of tool that helps people get online, basically. So yeah, it's an interesting one. I think there is a lot of payment processes out there at the minute, but this kind of is looking at a very niche market, which I think it might have a chance of cornering. So we'll okay. see. Okay, sounds interesting. Emmett, what company are you 30-second pitching me? 30 seconds? Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> I don't no. say hello to my wife and kids in 30 seconds. The okay, history like... of the elevator and why. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. I can do this. But that, all this little preamble doesn't count. Are you ready? Okay. I ran a screener on the stock market early last week um, for companies capitalized between 500 million and 5 billion that are profitable with a minimum share price of five bucks and that have a return on equity of 30% or more and have insider ownership of 10% or more. And it whittled down the 6,350 odd companies that are listed in the US down to 59. And one that jumped out at me, well, apart from Progyne, which I am a, I'm a fan of and have pitched for Horizon, is uh, called Revolve Group, which is an online fashion retailer for consumers mostly in the US and internationally. And they have two segments, Revolve and Forward. It basically is an online clothes shop for cool fashion. Okay, interesting. I, I thought fashion was, uh, well, I know fashion is an area you typically avoid. Mm. Um, so I think both are really interesting. If you're a bit of a Twitter influencer, did Revolve reach out to you for that elevator pitch? <laughs> well, well, <laughs> well, you know they have this influence. You know they have this influencer event, which apparently was a bit of a mess. And and if listeners have interest and you want to hear how not to do an influencer invest, where there was like five hour lines in the desert heat with no water, an influencer infighting, have a look at a nice piece that the standard.co.uk wrote just go to standard.co.uk and, and and type in the revolve festival it's quite a laugh yeah really, I, I think i think we're gonna have to come back to that one i'm gonna go with mike's shift to payments but um Emmett, i definitely want to hear that revolve pitch someday and <laughs> um, we, we might get Anne marie on i know she was talking about that festival too i think it would only be fair to have her input on that so sure. mike let's go with shift for payments so guys if you're not listening to this in the my wall street app this is where we're going to leave you today if you do want to find out more about Shift4 Payments and hear Mike's pitch, however, make sure to jump on over to the My Wall Street app, set up a free account, and you can listen to the rest of this conversation for free. Remember, if you have any questions that you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle in future, you can get in touch with us. You can find us, as always, on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. P-O-D at mywallstreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today. We will, The Beth Kindig interview is next week, so we won't talk to you then, but we'll talk to you in two weeks. So see you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.